Well, good morning. Hey, if anyone's new here, my name's Jono. I'm the uh, pastor of Christ Sanctuary Church. And um, is everyone awake? Yeah. Everyone happy? Yeah. Amen. Um, my wife uh, specifically asked me this morning, please don't talk too much about the rugby. And, and I completely agree. You know, we're, we're switching now. We're switching now from celebrations of, of, of temporary things to the great drama. <laughs> the, the great drama of the gospel. God's story. We're talking about eternity here this morning. And so for my last, my last message in a little series called The Gospel in One Verse, um, I've picked Mark chapter 1, verse 15, and I've, I've picked it very deliberately for this morning. Uh, we've seen over the last five weeks that the gospel message is, is a message that appears foolish. Uh, we've seen that it's a message of redemption for sinners. We've seen that it's the gospel shows the love of God which comes down to us in our helpless place. We've seen that the gospel is the message by which Jesus heals all the effects of sin from start to finish. And today we'll see that the gospel is a message from a king about his kingdom. That's our focus this morning. Mark chapter 1, we'll start off in verse 14. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just know that without you, without your Holy Spirit, we accomplish nothing here this morning. I thank you that we have something to sing about. I thank you that you sent your Son to save us. And I just pray as we gather around the Word this morning that it would be a profitable time and a time that is pleasing to you. Use it to build us all up, to build your church. Father, I pray that you would use us, use the faithfulness of our church and the faithfulness of all the people around the world that call Jesus Christ Lord to bring the kingdom to earth by the preaching and the proclamation of the gospel. Very ordinary means, but ones that you've promised to bless. I pray that you bless us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. I just want to give one little quick verse as well to add on to what we're saying. Um, and that is Matthew 4.23. And it says that Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. If you've been around the church, you will have heard of the gospel. If you've been around the church, you have heard of the kingdom. I want us to know this morning that 
The kingdom and the gospel are related because the gospel is a message about the kingdom of God. What's the kingdom got to do with the gospel? The gospel is a message about the kingdom of God. And it comes from a king. So Jesus... I want us to know there's something special happening here in Mark chapter 1. Jesus has just come out of the wilderness, right? He spent 40 days in the wilderness being tested, and he comes out and he begins his formal ministry. This is it. Jesus was a preacher. He was. Jesus was a preacher, and he came out of the wilderness, begins his formal ministry, and this is the summary of his first sermon. The time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. That was the first thing Jesus did when he started his ministry. He preached a message. And so we'll see this morning that Jesus Christ is the king who announces his kingdom and he calls us all to live a life of repentance of faith in him. So now... What is the kingdom of God? If I asked you, please just be completely honest. If I asked you, what is the kingdom of God? Who here thinks they could give me a decent definition? Not many, right? That's why we're doing this. The gospel of the kingdom. Let us not be confused. Let us learn what Jesus Christ has to say. Now, as I began studying this text, I realized I could give nine sermons on the kingdom. There's so much in scripture. And yet we don't always, like, we don't really know that much about the kingdom. So let's learn. And instead of nine sermons, I'm going to save everyone here. I'm going to give nine attributes of the kingdom of God. That's going to be the basis of this morning's sermon. Nine attributes of the kingdom of God. I'm going to try and move through them quickly. First one is this. The kingdom is the spiritual reign of God in the hearts of men and women, right? The kingdom is the spiritual reign of God in the hearts of men and women. Right? Some people wonder, why is there even a need for a kingdom, right? Doesn't God just rule over the entire universe? Have you ever wondered that? God rules over the entire universe, does he not? Why, does, why the need for a kingdom, a spiritual kingdom? And you wonder, like, who else is in this story? Satan? Isn't it true that Satan's only got what authority God gives him? Yeah, Satan's on a leash. Why the need for the kingdom if God already has all authority? Well, simply because that's the means he's chosen to use to save all the little rebels running around on his earth. God's chosen to save sinners by changing their hearts, saving them, and having them live for him. That's the kingdom as it stands right now. The spiritual reign of God in the hearts of men and women on this earth. So this is the kingdom that rolled out gradually over thousands of years. That's what it is. It is a completely different kingdom to kingdoms that most men make, right? 
You think of any great leader. I mean, if you're into history, you think of Attila the Hun, you think of Napoleon, you think of Caesar. All their kingdoms and their empires come by the sword. And Jesus' kingdom is different because it comes internally by love. And as we, we talked, we've already talked about this morning, there are millions, if not billions of people alive on this earth that will die for the King Jesus, who rules by love, not by fear of the sword. Amazing. It's an amazing spiritual kingdom. So the kingdom exists invisibly wherever Christ reigns. And you've got to ask yourself, where is Christ right now? According to scripture, he's at the right hand of the Father. So how is Christ reigning on earth? The Bible says through the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit, who lives inside believers. When we read in 2 Corinthians 6, an often misused passage, which says that you Christians are the temple of the Holy Spirit, that's a statement about the kingdom. The fact that the Holy Spirit dwells inside Christians is the means by which the kingdom exists in this earth. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. But firstly, the kingdom is a spiritual kingdom inside our hearts. Secondly, the kingdom has a king. Sounds obvious enough, right? Jesus Christ. Jesus is the king of God's kingdom, and Jesus alone. And this is the fulfillment of the prophecy made to King David in the Davidic covenant. I'll read 2 Samuel chapter 7, very briefly, verse 12. God says to David, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Jesus Christ is the king over the kingdom, and he is the greater King David. David's reign ended. Jesus' reign will be forever. Thirdly, the kingdom is the link between the Old and the New Testaments, right? Your Bible is divided up into Old and New Testaments, right? Some people separate Old and New Testaments so much so as if they have nothing to do with each other. Other people make the opposite mistake and they basically like merge them together as if there's no actual lines between the two and if they're all just the same 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 story. Well, the Bible is one whole story, and it is one book, but it's divided in two for very good reasons. There's the Old Testament and the New Testament, and the link between the two of them is the kingdom of God. It's the overarching story which connects the Old and New Testament together. You see, when you start reading the New Testament, that you've got John the Baptist coming out and he's preaching, preparing the way for the Messiah, preparing the way for the Savior of the people of Israel. 
You've got this eager anticipation in the start of the New Testament of a king who will come in and bring his kingdom. Where did that anticipation come from? It didn't just come into being like a viral post on first century Facebook. Right? They're anticipating this for hundreds if not thousands of years. And that anticipation of the kingdom comes from the Old Testament. If you just go to the book of Isaiah, right? Just Isaiah, for example, right? Isaiah tells of uh, a coming imperishable salvation. He tells of a coming new heaven and new earth in the kingdom. That's Isaiah chapter 60 and chapter 65. Um, in the kingdom, death will be annihilated. That's Isaiah chapter 25. In Isaiah 26, it talks about the resurrection of the dead in this kingdom. In Isaiah 25, it also says that the blessings will be both for Jew and Gentile, which would have been quite shocking. But, but perhaps the best-known prophecy about the kingdom is in Isaiah 9. We read it often at Christmas. Verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Where's the kingdom come in here? Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness, from this time forth and forevermore. That's a statement about the kingdom. Jesus is the prophesied king who will rule over a kingdom. Attribute number four. The kingdom is invisible now, but it's presently being made visible by the church. That's a cool thing to think about. Luke chapter 17, Jesus talking to the Pharisees. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will you say, Look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. The kingdom is invisible. But as the church, we're called to proclaim the gospel of what Jesus has done. We're called to make disciples. We're called to love God. We're called to love one another. And in doing so, we communicate to the watching world who our king is. I love what Sproul says on this. He says, Jesus' status as cosmic king is invisible. The world is either ignorant of his sovereignty or denies it. It is the task of the church to give visible witness to the invisible kingdom. That's great. That's what we do. Fifth, the kingdom is received from heaven, not built on earth. So important this, so important. The kingdom's received from heaven, it's not built on earth with human hands. This matters. This matters. I'm, I'm very careful, I do not want to 
confuse everyone like crazy with all the, the, the errors that have come out of misuse and misapplication of the kingdom of God, but there are many. And most of them flow out of the fact, not understanding that the kingdom is received, not both. Therefore, therefore, application of this point right here. The kingdom is not a result of political process. The kingdom is not a result of revolution. Nor is it a society we create. Let me be controversial. Voting for the Green Party will not bring the kingdom to earth. Fine, do it. I don't care. But it's not bringing the kingdom, okay? And just in case you're a little bit slow this morning because you haven't had enough sleep, neither will voting for national, okay? Won't happen. Okay? Won't happen. <coughs> and I'm going to be so, so careful right now. I'm going to be so, so careful, just in case you think I'm a heartless jerk, right? I'm going to preface this, right? Eliminating poverty is a wonderful thing. Eliminating homelessness is a wonderful thing. Helping people out who are broken and messed up is a wonderful thing. Helping their felt needs and their material needs is a good thing. Cool? But if we eliminate all homelessness, we eliminate all poverty, we have not increased the kingdom one bit. Okay? That will happen when the kingdom fully comes. But it will be because Christ comes again, not because we've done it through political means or charity or anything else. Okay? The kingdom is received from heaven, not built on earth. And because the kingdom exists presently in heaven, it must therefore come down. The Lord's Prayer, which we've all prayed before, right? Your will be done on earth as in heaven. The kingdom comes down. It is received. And as we think about the persecuted church this morning... This has important connotations, right? Because the kingdom is received, it's not bought, it cannot be shaken. You see, Rome fell. Every political leader, military leader eventually falls. Every kingdom of this world eventually crumbles. It is shaken. And people use the exact same tactic against the church and they try and persecute the church out of existence. And it will never work. Because this kingdom is received from heaven and therefore it cannot be shaken, as Hebrews 12 says. That's a wonderful hope. It's a wonderful hope. It cannot be shaken. That's what Paul says in Philippians chapter 1, right? To live is Christ and to die is gain. You can't touch me. Bulletproof. Number six, the kingdom is here already, but not fully. The kingdom is here now, but it's not all here. The fullness of the kingdom comes only when Christ returns. Okay? The fullness of the kingdom comes at Christ's second coming. The kingdom's here now in part, 
but it only is fully here when Christ comes again. And when the fullness of the kingdom comes, there will be the complete absence of sin. There will be resurrected bodies for everyone, for the believers. There will be a new heaven and a new earth. And instead of the king being invisible, he'll be reigning visibly. Don't believe me? Read Revelation 21 and 22. It's right there. It's here now. Okay? Not here fully. That's coming. And therefore that means the kingdom is something we wait for. The kingdom is an event in time that's coming. It's here, but it's something we still have to wait for to come in fullness. The coming of the kingdom announces the consummation of human history and the end of it all. Two mistakes we can make in this case. Two mistakes. We can have an underrealized understanding of the kingdom, and we can have an overrealized coming of the kingdom. We can believe that the kingdom is not really actually here at all. And we fail to see that some of the blessings of the kingdom, in, for example, the forgiveness of sins according to the new covenant, the blessings of the new covenant in Hebrews 8. Forgiveness of sins comes with the kingdom. It does. If we don't believe the kingdom's here at all, we can neglect that. There's thousands upon thousands of ethnic Jews that are still waiting for the Messiah and still waiting for the kingdom. They haven't realized that the kingdom is already here. But on the other side, we can have an overrealized understanding of the kingdom being here. And we can miss that all the benefits of the kingdom coming in its fullness are not here. That the creation is not new now. That sin is still here. Prosperity preachers, for the most part, have an over-realized understanding of the kingdom. That's, where, that's why they peddle that prosperity gospel. And it's wrong. Sin is still here, and the creation is not yet all new. But it's important to realize, as we look through this kingdom, that this tension of this kingdom being here already, but not fully here. That forgiveness of sin, which Jesus promises, is not just promised, but it's being accomplished because of the kingdom. Forgiveness of sin is being accomplished by the gospel because the kingdom is here now already. Seven out of nine. The kingdom comes through the cross. The kingdom comes through the cross. The gospel of the kingdom is the gospel of the cross. As I said, I don't want to confuse everyone too much here this morning, but the kingdom doesn't get talked about a ton in the New Testament after the gospels. And some people come along and say interesting things like, Jesus preached the gospel of the kingdom, 
But the Apostle Paul, who wrote much of the New Testament, preached the gospel of the cross. It's true. It's out there. Jesus preached the gospel of the kingdom. Paul preached the gospel of the cross. And they drive a wedge in between Paul and Jesus. Not helpful. Now why do they do that? Usually, it's because they then say, Paul's gospel was just about forgiveness of sin. And Jesus had a much more well-rounded gospel. Jesus cared about the new creation. Jesus cared about the environment. Jesus cared about health and healing of sickness and all those kind of things. They drive a wedge between Jesus and Paul. And what they usually do is use that distinction to promote some kind of what's called a social gospel. Social gospel is we take Jesus and we add something to it, something that you must do to make the gospel be more full, like Jesus did. And therefore the gospel message gets changed into the kingdom and Jesus plus environmentalism. Or the kingdom and Jesus plus socialism, Marxism, free health care, whatever. The problem with that, I'm not being pedantic here, right? It's out there. You start reading Christian books, you go into Bible colleges, it's out there. I'm glad it's probably not in this church. I'm thankful for one thing, that the people who try to promote the social gospel have been helpful in reminding the church that Jesus came to redeem all the effects of sin and that what he won on the cross also includes a new creation. Very popular to be passionate about the environment. Yeah, Jesus did win a new creation, but it only comes into being when he comes again, not now. Not now. If I've confused you to death right now, just know this. The gospel of the kingdom is the gospel of the cross. And when we take the gospel and we add anything to the gospel, anything we must do, we lose it. So if it's the gospel plus environmentalism, the gospel plus left-wing politics, the gospel plus right-wing politics, the gospel plus homeschooling, whatever it is, whatever it is, balance, I'm going for balance, okay? Balance. Gospel plus public schooling, right? Whatever it is, when you add something to the gospel, when the kingdom is something that we build, you lose the gospel. You lose it. It is received. It is from God. The gospel is a message about what God has done. We're going to get to repentance and faith. That's not the gospel. Repentance and faith is not the gospel. It's our response to the gospel. Okay? The gospel is what God has done. So the kingdom is primarily about forgiveness of sins. It's primarily about having a new relationship with God as Father and us as His children. And it's also primarily about a new creation. 
new heaven, new earth, all in one. The disciples, Jesus' disciples, did not expect this. They did not expect that at all. They expected a national kingdom, a military kingdom. Let's put it this way. Jesus' disciples in Acts 1.8 said, Lord, will you now at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? They're like, I thank you for this cross. I don't know what you're doing there. Will you now restore the kingdom to Israel? You see, the disciples were looking forward to Jesus being some sort of cross between Barack Obama, Richie McCaw, and Attila the Hun. <laughs> That's what they were waiting for. That's what they wanted. Charismatic, fearless military leader who would lead the people to beat up those Romans who were ruling over them. That's what they were anticipating. And instead, they got a leader, a king, who went to a cross to die. Completely blew their paradigm of what the kingdom was. Which brings us to number eight. The kingdom brings separation. You know, when Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem with his disciples, they would have been expecting that when he got to Jerusalem, this king, he would be separating Jew from those ugly, filthy, nasty Gentile Romans who were lording over them. He would have separated Jew from Gentile and would have restored the kingdom of Israel. And you know what he did? You know what that kingdom did instead? Read the Bible. Centurions got saved. Roman centurions got saved. Jesus' kingdom united Jew and Gentile. United Jew and Roman. It's amazing. They wouldn't have expected that. But you know, it did bring separation. Not from Jew and Gentile, but from believer and unbeliever. That's Matthew 25, when Jesus separates the sheep from the goat. The kingdom does bring separation, but it's between those who bow their knee to the king and those who do not bow their knee to the king. That's who it separates. And lastly, ninth attribute of the kingdom of God. The kingdom has citizens, and it needs citizens. No king worthy of the name has a kingdom with no people in it. That would be kind of dumb, right? My kingdom. Loser. <laughs> How do I bring this back to serious thoughts? The gospel of the kingdom is not a call to receive forgiveness of sins and then live for yourself. The gospel is a call to live for the king in his kingdom. Right? 
The whole idea of a churchless Christian who just does their own thing because they've got their own salvation? No. You live for the king in his kingdom. We call this discipleship. Follow the king. So how do we respond to this message of salvation from a king about his kingdom? It's quite simple. Mark 1.15 Repent and believe the gospel. I'm not going to spend as much time on this. Repent. Repentance involves realizing that God justly condemns you for your sin against him. Against the king. And you turn. You turn. You go in this way. And you turn to your only hope of forgiveness. That's Repentance. Turning from going your own way to turning to God. Yesterday was the 498th anniversary of the day that Martin Luther took 95 statements called theses and nailed them to the door of the Catholic Church in Wittenberg, Germany. We call that the start of the Protestant Reformation. He took 95 objections to the teaching of the Catholic Church, nailed them to the church, and that wound up causing the split, which is why you're sitting here and I'm not wearing a funny dress. (laughs) (coughs) And this is important because the Catholic Church has lost the gospel. They've lost the gospel. Why? Because they'd added something to the gospel. They'd said that God's grace is something that you earn by the things that you do. I have no sympathy. When you make God's grace something that you earn, rather than something that God has earned in Christ, you lose the gospel. And why do I mention this? Because the first thesis statement that Martin Luther wrote down was this. The whole of the Christian life is to be one of repentance. Get to that. Repent and believe. Believe. Have faith in the gospel. Faith is simply receiving a gift with open arms. That's what it is. It's receiving what God has done with open arms. All there is to it. Faith connects you to the blessings of the gospel. So we can be forgiven, not necessarily because of the quality of our faith. That's not the most important thing. The question is, who is your faith connecting you to? Everyone says, I have faith. Is your faith connecting you to Jesus Christ, the King who rules over his kingdom and offers forgiveness of sins to everyone who will live for him? That's what faith is. Accepting that free offer of forgiveness and holding on to it. People who try and earn their standing before God, they try and earn God's grace, neither repent because they're not turning to the source of forgiveness, nor do they believe. 
So let's go back to Luther. The whole of the Christian life is to be one of repentance. Where does he get that from? It's right here in this text. Mark 1.15 Time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. I don't want to give an English lesson after to a group of people who not sleep, haven't slept much today. But this is important. Here's why. Repent and believe. In the Greek, present continuous tense. Let me break that down. Present tense. Repent and believe now. Present continuous tense. Repent and believe now and keep repenting and believing. Repent and believe. Repent and believe. Over and over and over and over. Like those little hamster wheels down at the esplanade. <laughs> Repent and believe. That's the Christian life. Repent of sin and believe in the gospel. How do you know you've become born again? How do you know you're living for the king? How do you know you're part of the kingdom? How do you know you're a Christian? Not because one time you prayed a prayer and you repented and asked Jesus to come into your heart and you believed the gospel. Not because you did that one time. It's because you continually do it. Because your life is marked by repentance and faith over and over and over again. One of the Scottish reformers said this, you will not leave off repenting till you perfectly leave off sinning. We still sin, we keep repenting. And it's wonderful because it connects us to the free gift of the gospel. So I tie it all together. The gospel is a message about what God has done in Christ. Jesus is the king who has conquered sin, death, Satan, and hell. And we have two options in responding to this message. We can reject the king, we reject his kingdom, we reject his rule, we reject his gracious offer of forgiveness for our treason, which is what sin is. Or we repent and believe continually. Those are our only two options. And so when we hear words like repent, we always tend to associate them with negative connotations, right? They're dark, they're black, they're ugly. I don't... Ah. Give me a positive religion, we say. Give me something that makes me feel good. Give me something attractive. On the outside, Christianity is not attractive to anyone except for the person that knows they desperately need a savior. Not attractive on the outside. But as Chesterton said, when you get past the outer ring of Christianity, that repentance, that mourning, and you get into the inner ring of Christianity, it is marked by dancing and laughter and joy. On the outside it looks unattractive, but on the inside it's the greatest thing ever. Christianity is a call for all of us to go to our own funeral 
to die to our own lives, to grieve over sin. But what follows that grieving is joy and hope. That's what life in the kingdom is. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we what more can we do but say thank you? We thank you for this wonderful plan of salvation, and I pray this morning that that would capture our heart above all else. Father, I pray that we'd be diligent to share it with those around us, this news of the king that's conquered sin, Satan, death, and hell. Thank you for the purpose of being able to live for you. And I pray as we come to your table, we'd be reminded and convicted of our sin. But more than that, we would be glad and joyful as we see the forgiveness that comes through the blood and body of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.